Why do artists end up taking the approach that they do? What has happened to get them there? My name is Zakia Sewell, and in this series of Signal Path, I'll be delving into the pivotal moments that form the way artists think about sound. In this episode, I'll be talking to the multi-instrumentalist and composer Colin Stetson. Hello, Colin. Welcome, welcome. How are you doing today? And whereabouts are you? I'm in Montreal. Ah. It is just unseasonably warm and it doesn't even have to get anywhere near actual t-shirt weather for everybody to just drop <laughs> everything and, and just bear all. Sounds quite similar here. Everyone gets their kit off as soon as there's about 10 degrees. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Known for his radical full body approach to playing the saxophone, his collaborations with artists like Tom Waits, Arcade Fire, Laurie Anderson and Bon Iver, and his eerie compositions for Hollywood film scores. So perhaps we should start at the beginning. You know, it's always nice to get a little bit, you know, to get a, pa- a picture painted of people's early years and the sort of sounds that they grew up with. So I wonder, did you grow up in a musical household? Not in terms of variety or, or, or breadth of um, scope, musically speaking, but there was certainly music around, and both my parents are very musically inclined. My, my father was a, um, he sang in a rock band, and, um, and my mom wanted to play the piano, but her father would never do it because he thought it was, never buy her one because he thought it was frivolous. So um, <laughs> that was the extent of their um, musical um, engagement. But they were both very inclined, and they both loved music. And we grew up with, I don't know, probably 10, 11 records in the quote-unquote collection. And the majority of those were Hendrix and the Beatles. And I think Dad had one Queen album. <laughs> I think that might have been the extent of it. And so, and so when did you first encounter... The saxophone, when did you first sort of realize that that was your instrument, the instrument that you wanted to play? Well, first of all, my, my older brother is about four, uh, five years older than I am. And we grew up in the 70s and 80s, and we were that first guard of um, MTV kids. So I remember very uh, vividly sitting in front, like sitting on the, on the rug in front of the TV, just staring at it. And back then, it was just music videos all day long. And we adored it. I think he was, he must have been nine or 10 years old, just gotten into fifth grade. And at our school there uh, in the fifth grade, you got to pick an instrument and join the school band. And um, when he, you know, he picked the flute, I believe, or someone gave him the flute. And I remember at that time, I had become um, rather enamored with the with the video, the song and video for um, Men at Works, Who Can It Be Now? And so I thought to myself, when I'm old enough, I'm going to play the saxophone because um, it, it was something about the, the shape and sound of it that I just felt an, a, a, an immediate affinity for. And um, if it was possible for a five-year-old to think like, wow, that is the sexiest uh, instrument, um, <laughs> then that, that, that's where I was. So I, I was determined. So you picked it up, you picked it up quite young then. No, I mean, I suppose nine is, is, uh, young enough. <laughs> yeah. And so 
tell me about that sort of first pivotal moment, um, you know, once you were sort of learning the saxophone, when you mastered a particular technique that has since become integral to the way that you play. Oh, yes. So, you know, I was a, I was a decent player up until the point that I was about 15, and then I got a private teacher for the first time. His name was Christopher Creviston. He's an incredible, incredible classical player. And um, really the reason that I ended up becoming um, obsessed in, with music and, and making it my life's work. And for me, and I think with most, most children, if you don't tell them that what they're doing is supposed to be difficult, then they just go ahead and do it. So uh, one of the first things that he, that he did he brought to me the, the technique of circular breathing, which is just for anybody who doesn't know, is it's a coordination trick where you basically make your mouth, cheeks, and uh, and neck into a bit of a, a bagpipe bag. It becomes a reservoir for for air, and it and it squeezes it it holds squeezes air out just long enough for you to. Uh, suck in air through your nose at the same time. And so he taught me this uh, and he said, you know, go home, you know, practice this. And he gave me a few techniques on how to practice. And he says, I think you'll probably find that you've, you, you know, you'll, you'll have it by next week. And I had it by the next morning. I started studying with him when I was 15, and by the time I was just about 17, I had used that technique, among, you know, uh, in in the context of a classical piece, to audition for and win my scholarship to go study at the university that he was, you know, with his professor at the university that he was um, studying in. And, you know, the way that you've described it, it sounds, it's quite a visceral experience and it's sort of, you know, the holding your breath in, or sort of using your breath in that way. And I know that you sort of described it as hovering in space. I mean, when you were learning that, you know, can you take us back to that night? I mean, did you stay up all night, you know, crazily trying to get hold of it? Was it quite simple? <laughs> did it feel like a kind of revelation when you discovered it? Or, or is it something that sort of, as you look back, you kind of see it as a significant moment? Um, as I look back, I see it as a significant moment. In the context of the time, it was just another thing that someone taught me how to do, and I picked it up seamlessly and very quickly. So it, it, Chris showed me a couple different techniques, one of which was to take a small piece of tissue paper and put it up on the wall and then bring your face very close to the wall where that tissue paper was and then to start breathing in this, in this way and to keep the tissue um, held on the wall. I had it overnight. I, also, as I as I illustrated, I was kind of a fiend for validation, um, for <laughs> for impressing my uh, my elders, and so. And Chris was uh, just an you know iconic for me. He 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 created a kind of music that I had not heard of at the time, and he played with a passion that I had not seen firsthand. Um, and I looked up to him in, in such a way so that if he told me some, if he told me jump like I. It, <laughs> It was getting done. <laughs> yeah. 
So there's a track that you've said was particularly influential to your playing during this period. Tell me a little bit about that that piece and sort of where you were when you first heard it and why it's moved you so much. Mm. One of my closest friend friends, uh, Josh Tillinghast, brought to me this piece of music one day. I mean, we were in that that phase of life at 19 where we were just consuming everything. It was just you know we were in music school. Um, it was our life, and I remember Josh bringing this piece um, uh, Icefall by Nobukazu Takamura and I had been experimenting with you know I'd taken the circular breathing from music that was already codified you know playing classical music and playing you know and improvising in in some senses but I, I just started at that point to to delve into my own uh, compositions using that technique. And when I heard Nobukazu Takamura's piece, Icefall, which is a piece of electronic music, I just, there's something about it. And especially at the time that it sounded like classical music from the future. It really, it really just sounded disjunct from time. Rarely do you hear something that you've never heard before. And, you know, truly, uh, in in all ways, and and that was one of those things, and it just there was a snap. Let's fast forward a little bit to your second uh, pivotal moment, um, a moment where you got the opportunity to work with one of your heroes. Mm-hmm. So another one of my closest friends, Peter Kelly, he, he, he gave me Black Rider by Tom Waits at that point and just said, this is going to change your life. And it absolutely did. I became just completely obsessed, and within a week and a half, I had bought I, I bought every record of his, and so it became my life's goal at that point, pretty instantaneously, that you know I was going to move to San Francisco after after university, and at some point, find a way to hook that up, and in I think it was just under two years, I received a phone call from his wife, uh, Kathleen, asking me if I wanted to come out to the studio and do some recording for some records that they were working on. So needless to say that, you know, it's a, it, it's kind of a, a life affirmer and a, and a purpose affirmer in, in, in a way that I, I certainly had not had before. It wasn't really until I was on, I was driving to the studio th- those months later that I realized, oh man, if you fuck this up, y- your life is over. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could you could you take us back a little bit? I mean, how did it feel sort of walking into that room and that sort of being there and knowing that that was the moment? You know, with all the build up of all the phone calls and the sort of you know burgeoning relationship with your hero. I mean, how did it how did it feel in that moment to play? And how did he how did he respond to you? Uh, Tom is a a really lovely, quiet, and um, and mellow uh, person. Up until that point, 
I'm a classically trained, you know, jazz trained uh, saxophonist. There's a lot of ego, uh, kind of intrinsic to to the front person. And for the first time uh, in 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 those moments with Tom, I I was um, acquainted with the notion of musician as actor, uh, as mu- musician as storyteller. Th- that notion of being able to to become anything, chameleon-esque, uh, not just eye-catching, ear-catching things, uh, but anything that it took, any sound that it took in order to create the character that you're after, to, to, to elicit the emotional response. Um, he, he had a particular way of describing a musical direction in a piece of music and you know, I'd say, I, I, I think I want to play alto on this one. And he goes, okay. So this song, you're 80 years old. You've been playing this song as the last song on the set um, every Saturday night at the pub down the street from the house that you were born in. Go. <laughs> and, and I remember just smiling the widest grin. It's because it's beautiful. <laughs> It, it and it went on from there. There was there were moments where was it I'm still here, where he said on this piece you're an old woman who is on her deathbed and who in her dementia right now for the first time in in a great many years is seeing the face of her her childhood love go, <laughs> and and so as a twenty some dipshit kid. Uh, who was really good at playing. Um, it was uh, singularly freeing. what you're saying about about those experiences and sort of you know getting into a character and that sort of emphasis on mood and emotion over technique um sort of i guess kind of leads into the sort of next phase um you know this of you composing for film score which is so much about mood and emotion and uh, and and sort of that sort of more intuitive um, emotional approach so you know, how did you first take steps towards the film world, and had that always been something that you'd wanted to, to to do? When I was a kid, like before music became the sole focus, I was a visual artist, and so I I had wanted in some way to work artistically and to potentially work in film, you know, in 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 FX design and different things like that. So. You know, my one of my best friends, uh, Tim Hecker, and I were hanging out as we do, and uh, I remember he had just come in contact with Johan on uh, with Johan Johansson, um, the the late and uh, very very great film composer, and he had just been exposed to his music, uh, the soundtrack that that Johan had had written for Prisoners, and so one night we were hanging out and he just put it on, 
and it was a another one of those moments where where it really I, I felt like listening I was listening to something I had not heard yet really experiencing something unique um something for the first time truly and and I was then as I always have been very uh just moved and enamored by his by Johann's ability to to create such a gravity out of so little and so over the course of the next couple years I started doing more films and and then I think it was probably only two years later that Johan reached out to me to to do a little bit of recording for the soundtrack to Arrival and so we got to meet and and I remember just being in the presence of of an idol being in the presence of someone who was paving the way and and he, it was re- remarkably formative f- for me and uh such a relief to meet others that are carving paths that that are doing things that are truly all their own mm. and 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 what was it about that track in particular i mean if you can if you can sort of cast your mind back and remember you know or that that particular soundtrack i mean was it something about the way it made you feel was it unsettling was it you know like because that is one of the incredible things about um i mean it's all about mood isn't it it's all about a kind of uh the, sut- the subtleties of emotion that can be evoked through you know through 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 changes through subtle changes um you know what was it about that particular soundtrack um that sort of that shifted something in you well, film music is no different from all music in that the whole purpose of it is to elicit, you crafted in order to elicit an emotional response in a listener. One of the things that is the most fascinating, most challenging, and 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 enduring in the in the process for me uh, is the fact that there are predictable and reliable ways to go about doing these things and and not to break it down into something that sounds too uh, sterile or mechanical. But it it is, in a sense, a science. We're used to the very oft-used tracks down the mountain, you know, those carved ruts in the snow that everybody skis down. We're used to seeing those. They're, They're kind of ubiquitous throughout film. It is rare when you hear someone do certain things in manners that you haven't heard deployed before. And for me, Johan was doing that. I mean, remember that that track, The Keeper? I mean, really, there's just, it's very simple. It's really just this undulating, terrifying beast of the of the contrabasses. And, and, and I do uh, really feel quite a, an enormous amount of gratitude to Johan uh, and his music, you know, for for his mentorship and kindness that he did when when he was alive. Amazing. I mean, I w- I wanted to hear maybe just sort of to touch on that that kind of idea of dread and terror because you know in some of the uh, film scores that you've worked on more recently, they have been for for, for horror movies and this sort of like in you know and a very sort of intense. Uh, emotion and mood that perhaps um, you don't often get to express. Perhaps you don't sort of get to express on your solo work in the same way. You sort of these are sort of really sort of 
deep and dark avenues. And and, and I'm curious about how that process um, has been for you of composing for, let's say, hereditary. Um, what was that? What was that process like? And did you feel like it sort of enables you to get into certain moods and to so- certain sonic textures that maybe you wouldn't um, in your solo work? Certainly allows me to get into certain sonic textures that I don't in my solo work, just because the I don't have the same rules in in a soundtrack that I that I do in my solo work. My solo work is based on a set of rules that I established when I was in my twenties, which was basically this will will be now and forever something that can only be attained through a physical act between me and the instrument. You know, you can't add overdubs you can't add um effects you can't you know if you can if it can be conjured between you your physical body and the and the instrument itself fair game so solo work has always been that for me i carry the same sort of an idea into scoring where i i don't have the same prohibition on additives but I have a certain process of limiting the aesthetic. I would say that there are moments where I delve into the horrific. One thing that I do utilize throughout is different different techniques to to make a listener feel vulnerable and many times uncomfortable. I want someone's visceral, like human, like. A reaction. You you get that from first creating some amount of, a, of an actual physiological discomfort and kind of mental emotional upset and then you have your, your your foot in the door and then you can manipulate it's like when you're wrestling um, one of the first well the first rule that you learn is wherever the head goes the body goes and so if you can manipulate someone's head in a grapple everything else is going to go that way so this is kind of like the head goes process for me um wherever i can get um if i can get that foot in the door and i can grab a hold of the back of the neck <laughs> i can move you to wherever it is i put, yeah, need you to go so um, a lot of the time that that comes with a listener's like sincere vulnerability yes grab him by the back of the neck <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, no, I know exactly. I know just it's uh, about finding that sort of keyhole in, isn't it? Um, you know, is there a sort of a golden thread that you'd say runs through all aspects of your work, from your solo albums, your collaboration, and your film scores that sort of links it all links it all together? Huh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I. We'll, we'll get needlessly deep for a second, but we know from from our own experiences that um, the the source of our suffering lies in the main our main evolutionary advantage, that being our ability to vividly 
conjure up a future and uh, contemplate a past. And so for me, the thing that I want the most is to be in the in this present moment energetically and experientially and consciously. And so if there's a through line uh, in, in all of it for me in, in the making of music, it's, it's that, is, is trying to in some way capture their attention and give them that respite to simply be present. I think everything kind of boils down to that that might be bedrock. <laughs> it's a good it's a good bedrock to to have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Zakia Saul, and you've been listening to Signal Path, a podcast series by Shaw. This episode was recorded remotely with the SM7B.